Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's interview is with Major General Jimmy O. Keenan, the Deputy Commanding General, Operations, for the U.S. Army Medical Command and the Chief of the Army Nurse Corps. To put Major General Keenan's accomplishments into perspective for listeners who are not familiar with the military, the Army has approximately 492,000 active duty personnel and only 309 general officers. Furthermore, Major General Keenan is one of only eight female major generals. In this podcast, we discuss her fascinating career, which ranges from time as a floor nurse to writing legislation as a congressional fellow to being second in command of one of the largest and most unusual healthcare systems in the United States. Welcome to the Forge, General Keenan. Thank you. So you did your BSN in nursing at Henderson State in Arkansas. What drew you to nursing, and in particular, what drew you to Army nursing? Well, you know, when I initially came in to start my undergraduate degree, I was pre-med my first semester, and then I got to thinking about, wow, it's going to take a long time. Mm -hmm. Or at that time, when you're 18, it seems like it's going to take a long time. And I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare, so I looked into uh, nursing, and I said, you know, I think that's really where I should be, not in pre-med. And so I switched my major after that first semester to uh, nursing, and probably the most important thing I ever did. Now what drew me to Army nursing is I actually had initially planned to go into the Air Force. I'd looked at Air Force ROTC. I'd never even looked at Army ROTC. But I ended up going to Henderson and the Air Force said, well you can do one semester there. You'll have to do Army ROTC and then you're going to have to switch to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. Well when I switched my major to nursing and I was actually in Army ROTC, I realized that if I went back to the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville, they didn't have a nursing program, and I really enjoyed, I found I had, re- I really enjoyed Army ROTC, and so the Army uh, offered me a scholarship, uh, ROTC, a three-year ROTC scholarship, I already had a two-year academic scholarship, and I said, you know, I really think I'm supposed to be in the Army. So what initially had been my plan mm-hmm. when I started in August of 82, Actually, uh, by January of 83, I had decided, one, my major would be nursing and that I would stay in Army ROTC. And that was, now reflecting back on it, was the best decision I ever made. Well, yeah, it seems to have worked out all right. Yeah. So your first assignment was at Eisenhower Army Medical Center in Georgia, one of the Army's premier teaching facilities at the time. How did your training prepare you for the reality of nursing, and in particular, Army nursing? Well, you know, one thing I think that was great about my BSN program is they were very focused on ensuring that not only did you have the rationale that is in a Bachelor's of Science uh, of Nursing program, but they also ensured you had the clinical experience. And so uh, I felt very comfortable in the clinical setting. I'd also went through the Nursing Summer Training Program and had spent uh, six weeks at Fort Riley, Kansas, working at their hospital there and felt very, you know, now I understood what Army nurses actually did. And so when I got to Eisenhower, 
I, I was a brand new nurse, mm -hmm. but I felt like I had been prepared. And then I went through an eight-week preceptorship. Uh, my first assignment was actually on a uh, hematology oncology, 43-bed uh, uh, ward, very, uh, very busy, mm -hmm. uh, very intensive unit. But I had a strong clinical uh, group there uh, who I worked with who ensured that understood what the practice of nursing was. I also, we had a clinical nurse specialist who ensured uh, that we understood the uh, practice guidelines for oncology hematology patients and, and really instilled in me that I had made the right decision to be an Army nurse. Okay. So early on, it seems like you made a decision to branch out from a strictly clinical career. You did you did, did do more nursing assignments after Eisenhower, but you also had assignments in recruiting, training, and you even and you had assignments with deployable units like the 67th Cache. Uh, in fact, you deployed to Kosovo as the chief nurse uh, of the 67th Cache Ford. Uh, what did you learn about leadership up to this point in your career? Well, you know, one thing I'll tell you: uh, when I was at Eisenhower, I decided fairly early on that I would work on my master's degree okay. in uh, nursing and pursue that. And that was one thing that was instilled in me in my, my bachelor's program. And so I uh, pursued that at the Medical College of Georgia, now Georgia Regents University there in Augusta. Mm -hmm. And I did that on my own time. Mm -hmm. I used a 75% tuition reimbursement, which mm -hmm. is a program the Army has. In looking at what degree that I wanted to pursue my master's in, and, and remember I just graduated in May of 86 and got commissioned, I started my master's program the following spring of 87. So I looked at the nursing administration and, and I decided to track nursing administration. Because I did that, that affected every assignment that I had after that. Because when I left Eisenhower in December of 89, I had just graduated also with a master's uh, of, of science in nursing administration from the Medical College of Georgia. So I was a first lieutenant promotable with a master's of science in nursing. Wow. I think that that affected some of those, uh, those different assignments I had in uh, things like recruiting and then also being assigned at the AMED Center in school because mm -hmm. I already had my master's of science in nursing. It opened up many other doors to me when uh, after my assignment in Korea I was assigned to Fort Hood to the 21st cache, but attached back to the hospital as a nurse methods analyst. From that experience of having those different types of assignments uh, of both in a fixed medical treatment facility and more traditional clinical roles, but also in nursing administration, in resource management, in working at over at the AMED Center School in the schoolhouse, I really think that really helped me develop that clinical slash admin base. Mm -hmm. uh, and from that, I was very fortunate too to have great mentors and different people that I worked with, non-commissioned officers, that really helped guide me in developing my leadership style. Did someone encourage you to say, hey, you know, I mean, you just graduated, you, you waited barely a year to start your master's. Did somebody say, hey, this would be a good idea to get going now, or was this something that had well, been kind of encouraged I, uh, during your bachelor's? Well, in, in my bachelor's program, they had, and they had actually, uh, at my school, 
they required you to take the GRE before you, you graduated with your bachelor's, which we all said, oh, we, we're not interested in getting the master's at that time because yeah. you're finishing up your, your four-year degree, which is pretty intense when you have, you're going to nursing school, doing clinicals, and you're also fully engaged in ROTC. And so I uh, I'd said, oh, I won't use this. Well, when I got to uh, Eisenhower, I realized, okay, you know, maybe working shifts and, and doing other things, but I, I got interested because uh, in talking to the chief of education, you know, they encouraged us to continue our, uh, our education. And I said, I, I could see that writing on the wall that in order to, to stay competitive in the Army Nurse Corps, at some point you're gonna have to have your, your master's uh, and it's preferred you get your master's in nursing. So I thought, you know, I've got the time and the energy. And so I, I thought, I'll just take a couple of classes. I'll see how it goes. Mm -hmm. And I took my GRE scores and I went down to the Medical College of Georgia and I said, uh, are these okay? Because I hadn't even looked at it, you know? And so uh, I had the envelope and they said, oh yeah, you can get fully admitted, no, no problem. And so I did and I just started taking a couple of courses at a time because mm -hmm. I was working mainly evenings and weekends. So I was able to go to school during the day and then I would work, you know, evenings or nights or weekends. And, you know, before I knew, knew it, you know, I was uh, researching my thesis topic and, you know, doing my, uh, writing my, my mm -hmm. thesis and then it was time to defend it. And, you know, and I had my degree and, I, and I'm glad that I, I, I did that uh, because I do think it opened more opportunities for me to go ahead and, and get my master's early on and then to be able to utilize it. And so I've gotten a lot of utilization out of that, uh, that master's in nursing administration. When did you know you were gonna make the Army a career? Was it early on like this or did you kinda? Well, you know, I really, at that time when I was at, at Eisenhower and I was working on my master's degree at the Medical College of Georgia, another thing I did is I, uh, because I had moved from oncology, uh, hematology to work in the emergency room, which really became my passion. And at that point I said, you know, I'd really like to see what it would be like to work in a level one trauma center. Well, the Medical College of Georgia has the only, med only level one trauma center there in the, in the city of Augusta and those surrounding counties. And so I said, I'm, I'm gonna go. And uh, so I did my uh, request to do uh, uh, off-duty employment. And so I would work uh, a couple of shifts there a month uh, so I could sort of see what it was like Mm -hmm. to be a civilian, mm -hmm. if I was a civilian nurse. Mm -hmm. And what I found is I didn't really like it um, because I did not see the autonomy that I had in the military. And so I said, you know, I think I want to stay with this longer. Initially, I thought, you know, I'll probably just stay in four years and then, you know, get out. But after I saw that I did not have the same level of autonomy, uh, and this was a large, you know, university teaching hospital where I would have thought I would have had more autonomy, I just didn't feel it there. And so I said, I really think I have more opportunities if I stay in the military and as, an, as a soldier, as an officer, and as a, as a nurse corps officer. Okay. And you mentioned you had some mentors in, at kind of at this period. Did somebody kind of help you lay out a, a career map uh, at that point? Well, I, uh, I worked a lot with, uh, there, there were two people there. There was Colonel uh, James Kendall who was uh, the section supervisor uh, for uh, the med surge and then later for ambulatory nursing. And then uh, now Colonel retired Stephanie Marshall, who was the, uh, the clinical nurse specialist uh, there at Eisenhower, 
uh, for oncology hematology who really were great role models for me. And I you know, would talk to them about what I, what I planned to, to do next or what I was doing. And they, they really uh, encouraged me. And they, but they were phenomenal role models for me. So, so you went the administration uh, leadership side and you kind of set aside further clinical specialization. Uh, the Army Nurse Corps, of course, allows um, successful careers in the clinical side as well. Talk a little bit about kind of what, uh, what kind of opportunities there are for other, uh, within the Nurse Corps, um, for other nurses coming up through the, through the system. One of the things that we've really worked hard to, uh, to uh, put in place is to ensure that if a nurse wants to stay in the clinical setting, they can. Mm -hmm. And so with that, with the IOM study uh, that came out several years ago of, about nursing, we saw an opportunity for our advanced practice nurses uh, to uh, obtain their doctorate in nursing practice. So now that is the, the entry level for our advanced practice nurses is a doctorate in nursing practice. We'll actually graduate our first group this year that we've funded to, to go and get their, their DMPs. We have others that have gone back to get their DMP, but what that allows us to do is to have those uh, individuals, whether they're a family nurse practitioner or a, a certified registered nurse anesthetist, to be able to, to continue to practice in their field and be a clinical leader and stay clinically tracked and focused. The other thing that we found that's been critical, especially after almost 14 years of war, is to make sure that our clinical nurse specialist, that those positions are valued and that we keep them in key leader positions in our MTFs, especially our large medical centers, because they're the ones who ensure that our novice nurses and our mid-careerist nurses actually have someone that they can reach back to, as I did when I was a uh, second lieutenant and first lieutenant, to ensure that I, I was uh, following my practice correctly. Uh, what we found after 14 years at war, we had many of our nurses, because of uh, requirements to, to you know, deploy and uh, move into other roles, is that our younger nurses haven't had that mentorship or that person that they can reach back to with that clinical expertise in our large medical centers. And so we have, I call it almost going back to the basics mm -hmm. is what we're doing, mm -hmm. because you really have to build and that was one thing that was important to me, and I know I was able to do it at Eisenhower, was to build that strong clinical base that you need as a nurse. And that from there, you can go and you know, focus either clinically or administratively or through education, or you can go back and forth, you can command, but you have to have that strong clinical base. Uh, and that's been a concern for myself as well as the Surgeon General, is ensuring that our leaders of tomorrow actually have the strong clinical base that they need to take care of patients. Okay. So you progressed along in your career doing a, a, a number of interesting things, and then you go after something really unique, a, a congressional fellowship. What is a congressional fellowship? How did you get that opportunity, and what was it like? Well, you know, I was actually deployed in Kosovo in 99, uh, and while I was over there, haven't been a really focused in the emergency department and a trauma nurse uh, really since the, the late 80s. I had, a, we had several patients that came in who did, weren't vested in, in the military, which uh, the way the law was written originally 
is if you didn't have 20 years in the military and you died on active duty, unless mm -hmm. you were medically retired, mm -hmm. your family didn't get survivor benefits, mm -hmm. or uh, also VA benefits known as uh, uh, DIC. Mm -hmm. And so many times while I was in the emergency department, we would uh, resuscitate a patient for hours so that we could get the medically retired so their family would receive those benefits. And so I was deployed in Kosovo and I'd read in our Nurse Corps newsletter about the Congressional Fellowship and I thought that was interesting. And it was a, at a time in the summer, we had a lot of trauma patients. We actually had a, a Special Forces uh, soldier who had come in with a gunshot wound to the head. And so we uh, were resuscitating him so we could get him medically retired and had a PFC Beneke who was one of our 60 whiskeys working there with me. That's a medic, and right? I had a uh -huh, medic and I had everybody rotating to do CPR because you can only stay, you know, it's very physically demanding. And he looked at me and he said, uh, ma'am, are we going to be able to save his life? And I said, no, PFC Beneke, we won't. But what we're trying to do is get him medically retired so that his family can have benefits. And he just sort of looked at me and I thought about what I just said and I said, wow, that really didn't make a lot of sense probably to him. And so I applied for the, I got permission to apply for the Congressional Fellowship while I was in Kosovo, put my packet together and got everything turned in, came back uh, from the deployment in December of 99, and then was notified, I think it was in late January, early February of 2000, uh, while I was there in Germany, that uh, I'd been selected for the Army Congressional Fellowship. And so it's a competitive program where all branches of the Army, mm -hmm. infantry, everybody competes for, uh, in this case, 14 slots. And so I, I was very surprised I got selected. Uh, and so that meant that I had to report to the fellowship in July of 2000. And what's interesting with the fellowship is they, uh, they do train you on the legislative requirements of Congress. We know Congress appropriates and authorizes our military. But I think probably the, the most important thing I learned is how they see us and how we see them. And then the importance of how you communicate with them. And for us, we're not, we don't lobby uh, when we go to Congress. We cannot lobby by law, but we're there to inform them of what we do. And so I uh, interviewed, uh, you have to determine who you're going to interview with. They don't tell you you're going to go work for this person or that person, but you decide if you want to try to interview with somebody on the House or the Senate side. And then they encourage you to interview with someone that's either a defense appropriator or authorizer. And so I decided I wanted to work on the Senate side. And I looked at people or individuals that from states I'd been assigned in, Georgia, you know, I was from Arkansas originally, but I was a Texas resident now. And so I uh, went and I interviewed uh, with Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison's office of Texas. She was a, an appropriator as well. What does as a, that mean? Sorry. Uh, that means that they, they're the ones who actually write the, the bill that funds, that funds the military while the authorizers, the Senate Armed Services Committee, uh, actually write the laws that authorizes our pay, our benefits, and, and those type things. So I uh, went and interviewed with her office. They offered me a position. I was sort of like, oh, well, let me, I'm going to interview some. But I, I ended up taking that position. It was the best thing I ever did. Yeah. Uh, 
I went into the office. I worked for a retired lieutenant colonel who had been in MLA for the senator or had been a fellow, an Army fellow, mm -hmm. uh, and was her MLA and then became her chief of staff. His name MLA? was Dave Davis. Uh, what? What's an MLA? That's a uh, military legislative assistant. Okay. So they are the ones, so a military legislative assistant is someone who handles all the military related issues for a congressman or senator. Okay. And so I went to work in the office in January of 2001 and they immediately had me uh, start to work on a bill about Gulf War illness. So that was the first bill I actually, where I, I, I learned how you, you draft a bill and then all the requirements that it takes to actually get the bill and uh, either added to another larger piece of legislation or to independently pass one uh, as a law. I had told him going in that one of the most important things that I felt like I needed to do is to educate him about what happens when we have soldiers with less than 20 years that are unable to be medically retired in the loss of benefits. And so they let me work on that piece of legislation and we actually introduced the bill and co it was co-sponsored by uh, Senator Inouye from Hawaii, who was a World War II veteran. And we introduced it. We got pushback from the, some of the, the Senate Armed Service Committee, because that's a, where it had to go through, because they were like, oh, you know, this is going to cost money because this is a uh, mandatory benefit. You've got to find an offset. So I had to learn a lot when I drafted that piece of legislation. But we, we got it out there. We had people that were signing on to the bill, and then 9-11 happened. And the day after the 11th of September, the senator said we had to take her over to, to see the Pentagon. Yeah. And she said, uh, what can we do? And I said, well, ma'am, there were people killed in the Pentagon that did not have 20 years of service. And the bill you introduced on the 14th of June of 2001, we could make that bill retroactive back to 10 September, and their family would then have the benefits. She went immediately to uh, Senator Levin, who was the uh, Senate Armed Service Committee chairman, and asked that it be added as an amendment to the Defense Authorization Act that they were preparing that was in committee. They actually did that, and so we were able to amend the bill and have it put into the National Defense Authorization Act of 2002, uh, making it retroactive back to 10 September 2001 that if you die on active duty in the line of duty, uh, whether you're active, guard, or reserve, as long as you're on an active status, that you, uh, your family will get those benefits. Wow. And so uh, we really didn't, we knew we were going into Afghanistan, mm -hmm. but now looking back after 14 years, I don't think we realized how many families we were gonna be able to help yeah. uh, when you look at the loss of life that we had, and that's across all services. So. For me, the Congressional Fellowship, being able to do that yeah. was uh, paramount, but I also got uh, very good at drafting bills. So I drafted 11 pieces of legislation and eight of them became law. Wow, amazing. Uh, and so I uh, a very rich and rewarding experience, a very hard job uh, with the expectations that are expected, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot from the people that I worked with. I learned a lot from uh, the constituents uh, that came in from all services, as well as for anyone in healthcare. I met with anybody. It didn't matter what group it was uh, because I was a nurse. I got to meet with a lot of different constituents uh, related so not to just military people. But, right, yeah. right. And not just bills related to the military. I also drafted one 
which I got to, this was probably the fastest one I ever did. It was Afghan Women's and Children's Relief Act, and that was actually not related to the military, but more related to the State Department and USAID to make sure that if, when we got into Afghanistan, we knew one of the huge issues there with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden is not allowing women and children to have medical care as well as education. And so there had been actually a cartoon my mother had sent me from the Arkansas Gazette, which I had shared with Dave Davis, who he shared it with the senator, and I actually have it hanging on my wall over here. And it, it talks about, you know, the way to get to ben, Osama bin Laden is to actually educate the women and the children. And so the senator said, well, why can't we do that? And so we actually uh, worked with Senator Barbara Mikulski's staff and drafted a bill that October when we went into Afghanistan, we started drafting the bill and President Bush signed it in December, which was the Afghan Women's and Children's Relief Act, which ensured that there was money set aside uh, in the State Department to ensure the education and the health care for uh, the uh, women and the children of Afghanistan. Wow. So uh, <laughs> that was one I, that, uh, you know, to, to actually be able to, to help people who did not have the opportunities that we have was uh, that that was amazing too? So it was it was a great it was just a phenomenal experience that I had and, and really life changing for me. Really, I, I imagine. And you your follow on from that position was to be the chief of chief of the congressional liaison office for the Army Surgeon General. You kind of touched on this, but kind of highlight why does the Army Surgeon Surgeon General have a congressional liaison office and what did you do in that role? Well, you know, one of the things you have to realize is uh, if you watch in the news just the, the issues that we have today that Congress is concerned with, then there's a lot of personnel issues they're concerned with, but they're also concerned with the health and welfare of our service members and our beneficiaries. And so what the role ha or what you do as the congressional liaison is you ensure the Surgeon General uh, that we're addressing any issues uh, across Army medicine that the Surgeon General has to be informed on, as well as any pieces of legislation. We ensure those get reviewed by the right subject matter experts in MedCom. And then we uh, also set up congressional engagements with the Office of the Chief Legislative Liaison and the uh, appropriations, the uh, SAFMBOL, which is the appropriator side of the Army, because by law, you can't have appropriator, people that work with appropriators and with authorizers, you have to have two different groups. So all the services have one group that deals with appropriators and one group that deals with authorizers. And so for us, we were asked to look at uh, different le piece of legislation related to medical research because we do quite a bit of uh, DOD uh, congressionally directed research in the Army mm -hmm. through Medical Research and Material Command. At that time, it was over $800 million. Uh, when I was a congressional liaison. We also prepped the uh, Surgeon General to go on those visits to the Hill to talk to uh, authorizers and appropriators, as well as to the professional staff and the personal staff of the, the senators and congressmen, because they're very concerned about how we deliver health care to their uh, constituents. So quite a bit of time doing that. And then answering uh, when people have a, uh, an issue are a concern. Mm -hmm. They send a letter to their congressman or senator. I got to see those letters and actually work on responses to those letters when I worked for Senator Hutchison. But normally what happens is those letters come 
from the senator or the congressman back to the office of the chief legislative liaison, and then they'll send them to specific commands. So any of those concerns that were related to medical, or maybe it was a personnel concern from one of our uh, uh, MedCom personnel, would come back to me as a chief, and then uh, working with my, my staff of one here in San Antonio, uh, we would task those letters out, get the answers back, and then send those back up through to the, the senator or the congressman, as well as any White House inquiries. So, uh, and then also to draft any testimony, mm -hmm. uh, written testimony and oral testimony for the Surgeon General, as well as any uh, of our other key leaders uh, was my responsibility. Wow. You went from working kind of at this very high level to come back to San Antonio to be the commander at Fort Bullis. Uh, yep. Is that right? So at Camp Bullis, uh-huh. Yeah, excuse me, Camp Bullis. Uh -huh. What was that like coming? coming well, it was great because, yeah. you know, I, I wanted to command and I was excited I got to command yeah. uh, Camp Bullis. I always mm -hmm. found my experience from when I was an instructor with the AMED Center in school is that that realistic tough field training that, that we needed when we deployed, which mm -hmm. I saw benefit of when I was in uh, Kosovo, is uh, that it's important that we have that training. And now it was more important than ever because this was now June of 2003, and we were involved not only in Afghanistan, but as well as in Iraq. Yeah. And so the training we did there ensured that the America's sons and daughters from all the services that we trained out there were prepared to deploy and do their go-to-war task. And that was uh, critical. And so it was a great, great assignment to be able to work with not only our active component military uh, who trained out there, but also a reserve and guard, as well as the other services, as well as some, some other agencies that, that trained out there. So it was a great experience. So you, you, you spent some time as a commander. Uh, that was your first command? That was my first command. What, was, uh, what did you learn in terms of leadership having uh, stepping into that role? What was new about it uh, compared to other experiences you had had before? Well, you know, I think it wasn't so much new as I really relied on what I had learned as I moved up because, you know, sometimes as, as nurses, we, we don't, we sort of t sometimes don't realize some of the roles we're in are, yeah. are key leader roles, but they may not have the same name as you see traditionally in the Army. So as a charge nurse, you know, being in charge of a 43-bed uh, complex hem hematology unit is like being a platoon leader. A company commanders like being a chief nurse of an area support medical company. There's all these you you can look at and say, yeah, I had this experience. But it really gets down to whether you're a second lieutenant, a first lieutenant, a captain, or a lieutenant colonel. In this uh, case, being in charge is being able to listen to people, okay, and also being able to understand and address issues right away. And realize that sending an email doesn't mean you've answered anything. It's really about getting out, walking around, talking uh, to those that you work with, and value, valuing each one of them as people. And I learned that early on. Yeah. And I can tell you that no matter as a lieutenant colonel, as a two-star general, I found that it served me well to always remember that everybody's valued on the team and it doesn't matter what your rank is or your position, whether you're military, civilian, or contract, that you have to value everyone on the team. So from there, you, you came back to uh, be the chief nurse at DeWitt Army Medical Center, where we actually met. Mm -hmm. um, 
this is kind of a, a, a unique uh, assignment because there were several, several of you went on to senior leadership in the Army, including Colonel Betterman, who I interviewed uh, recently, as well as uh, 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 General Horoho, who's now the Surgeon General. One of the things that, that I noted working there on the staff uh, was the effort that you all as a team put into working and building a, as a, uh, building a command team. Uh, can you talk a bit about what that was like and what you learned from that process? Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the key thing again was, is, you know, I just come out of the, the Army War College, you know, where I'd spent a year and it was actually great time to reflect and to after having commanded, but really the job I really wanted to do, I knew I needed to do as a nurse corps officer was to be a deputy commander for nursing. And what I found in working there with with great leaders like Dave Bitterman and Felicia Pearson, who was the DCCS, the Deputy Commander for Clinical Services, and then for uh, first uh, General Horho, and then uh, for uh, uh, Colonel now retired Ken Canestrini, is it was about working as a team. Not it wasn't competition, but it was working as a team to remember that everyone that walked through that door, that they had a different story or a different concern and that we were there to address that and that we really wanted to have a positive patient experience for them. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was about ensuring they got the care they needed uh, and that we took care of them. And we didn't do that perfectly every day, but we really, that was our goal, was to provide quality, safe health care to our, our, our patients. And what I always like to call, you know, this is taking care of America's sons and daughters. And it's making sure everybody on the team understood that, that it didn't matter if it was logistics, housekeeping, we all had a role in taking care of the patient. And you had to value, every, again, going back, you need to value everybody on the team. And that's really what we instilled there, is to value everybody on the team and to stay focused on our mission, which was to take care of America's sons and daughters. Well, you, you went on from there. Uh, you were handpicked um, to be the chief of staff of the Warrior Transition uh, Command. Is that the correct? Yeah. It, what we first, uh, what happened was, is after the the article came out in the Washington Post about uh, uh, Walter Reed and Building 18, they uh, brought in uh, then Brigadier General Mike Tucker. Now he's Lieutenant General Mike Tucker, to uh, an armor officer. To, to look at what we needed to do across the Army to uh, ensure that we were providing not only the quality care, which really care was never the issue, it was about administrative functions as well as transition. How we transitioned soldiers either back to duty or to make them an, a successful veteran as they transitioned out of the military. And so I was the Deputy Commander for Nursing at Fort Belvoir when I got the email from then the Chief of Staff here at MedCom, Mr. Bill Thresher, who I'd worked with before when he was the XO for, the, for then Lieutenant General Peake when I was a Congressional Liaison. And he told me, he says, you're going to uh, go interview with General Tucker to be his Chief of Staff as they stand up this Army Medical Action Plan and identify what we need to address as an Army. And I said, well, you know, I've got a job. I'm very happy at the job I'm at. And it was, you know, no, you don't understand. <laughs> this isn't an optional. Not optional. <laughs> so I went to, to meet with General Tucker on, it was a Monday, it was the 9th of April of 2007. 
and he just starts right in and I said but really am I the the right person he goes oh yeah you're the right person Bill Thresher said I needed a Jimmy Keenan and I was like oh and so then I had to go back and tell my boss uh, Colonel Canestrini well not only are they pulling me but tomorrow I have to be in the Pentagon and I won't be back and so by that Friday the 13th of April I was fully integrated back into uh, the Army staff and knowing that I would not be going back to uh, the job I really loved as a DCN but no understanding why yeah. I had to move on and I really think it was my experience having uh, worked in uh, the Pentagon before having uh, been a congressional fellow mm -hmm. and also knowing there were some legislative things we we're going to have to address uh, as part of this uh, transformation of how we deliver care to our wounded ill and injured service members is why I got pulled to do that job. Okay. So you worked that job. What did you find most challenging about the assignment? What was most rewarding about it? Well, I think one of the most challenging things is when we started out, uh, we knew that we had to make immediate changes. and. We, we didn't have time to, to wait. And so we had to put together a team of experts across the military and across the Department of Defense, as well as in other agencies, such as the VA, to really understand what the issues were and then put together an operations order and stand up our then 36 warrior transition units mm -hmm. uh, by June of 2007. So, so you're really building a whole new organization to a whole, deal with A whole new organization and so we up. started out we had a lot of borrowed personnel at first to start out with and when I say a lot it ended up there was about 18 of us and so for the first really two years from April of 2007 until April of 2008 we, we had 18 people doing everything. Uh, and we were in temporary space with folding t tables and laptops, uh, working horrendous hours, but we knew we had to. We knew we had to make change, and we had to be able to measure that change, and we had to have quality outcomes uh, from the changes we were putting in place. Okay. And what was great about it is really we were able to look across at what was the best practices out there and clinical practices as well as administrative practices to ensure we were doing the right thing. I think some of the biggest challenges we faced is articulating what those requirements were going to be. Uh, so I had to spend a lot of time with the OSD uh, deputy comptroller mm -hmm. to articulate what our requirements were, what we thought our enduring requirements were, and then how to and then to get it into the POM. Okay. And so I had to I had to spend most of the time doing that process because General Tucker was engaged with Congress and other senior leaders working that level while I was working with a lot of the, the senior staff in the Pentagon to make sure they understood that this was an enduring requirement and what it looked like. And so that we also weren't building anything bigger than what we needed. So when you say a requirement, what you're talking about is resources, people resources. And, and, and equipment. And equipment, whatever. buildings. Uh, there was mm -hmm. a, uh, a significant uh, military construction bill because we really did not have uh, facilities to heal our, our wounded, ill, and injured service members in that met the uh, requirements for the American Disabilities Act. And so we had to, we had to in some cases, uh, build infrastructure 
to ensure that. And then we had to work across with all kinds of different agencies within the Army, but also the Department of Defense, the VA, uh, Department of Labor, and then all the great folks that wanted to, to help. Uh, and how did we address that and how we address donations. And uh, so it was uh, probably one of the hardest jobs I ever had. I can't imagine. I mean, so you take a very large bureaucratic organization as, and I don't say that in a negative way, right. but, a, but, a, but a structure that's very, you know, it's, it's a, and you're trying to make a, you guys were trying to make a, a radical change in a way across, across many uh, organizations. It uh, must have been a, a, a powerful experience. It was, uh, it was exciting at times, and then it was uh, uh, very stressful at times. But at the end of the day, you just had to be focused on that these were all individuals mm -hmm. and that had been wounded ill or injured, and along with them, uh, probably the bigger challenge was is her family had been wounded ill or injured too. And not only were you going to have to heal that soldier to get them to optimal uh, health benefit, but you also had to heal the family. And what was the new normal going to look like for that family? Because it was not going to be the same. Right. From there, you went to be the commander uh, of Evans Army Community Hospital in Colorado. Uh, so essentially the CEO. Right. Uh, so how 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 is that? Um, uh, what was what was the most challenging about this assignment, and kind of the most rewarding for you? I think that that probably the most challenging was uh, just the sheer change that was going on on that installation. We went from an installation that it had uh, one or two brigade combat teams, active uh, duty brigade combat teams with their division headquarters at Fort Hood to where they moved the entire division from Fort Hood to Fort Carson the summer I arrived. So ensuring that we had all the resources in place to support them. Additionally, at the time, we were, uh, there was a uh, study that was being published from uh, Public Health Command that uh, dealt with a number of murders and suicides that they had in Colorado, there at Fort Carson, uh, related to soldiers and the number of deployments and that they'd been on. And so we were looking at how to address that. And so we had initially stood up one embedded behavioral health team, uh, which ensured that the behavioral health, instead of all being focused inside of our bricks and mortar at our hospital, were actually located out uh, in those brigade areas with the units. So we pushed, we decentralized it and pushed it out. And that was the first time that we'd done that. And then we had to actually look and say, does this make a difference? How did you measure that? Uh, we actually measured it and we had uh, help with Public Health Command came in and evaluated. And what we found is we were able to reduce hospital admissions, uh, behavioral health admissions. We reduced uh, domestic violence, reduced the amount of drug and alcohol use, as well as we saw increased return to duty by implementing this program. And probably the most important and significant measurement was we found reduced stigma because now behavioral health was out there just like primary care was out there. So, you know, I used to tell people, you know, if you have high blood pressure and you know your blood pressure's off, you go see your primary care provider and you think nothing of it. Behavioral health has got to be the same way. Behavioral health, if, if you are feeling depressed, you need to talk to somebody, you should be able to walk into a, an embedded behavioral health team and feel the same way you would if you had gone in for high blood pressure. And so that really was our goal. From that, 
we found also uh, a significant improvement with the relationship between the soldiers and their command teams. Command teams trusted our providers more because now they knew who their providers were that supported their team. And so there was much more trust and then more open communication about how better to take care of our high-risk soldiers. So we could identify and mitigate and put in place safeguards for those high-risk soldiers. So hopefully we could prevent a suicide or a, you know, uh, a homicide or, or some other bad outcome. And we were able to do that. And so as we put more of our embedded behavioral health teams in place with our, with our brigade combat teams and with our separate battalions, we got a lot of positive feedback from the units as well as from the measurements, the, the third party, which was U.S. Army Public Health Command, that they were actually measuring. From that, the Surgeon General's team came out and did an evaluation and they said, wow, we want to standardize how we do behavioral health. So they put together a behavioral health service line and then they rolled out a plan to put embedded behavioral health in all of our brigade combat teams across the Army. Excellent. And so uh, very, very, very positive uh, return. So this is, you mentioned Public Health Command, mm -hmm. uh, came out and, and visited you quite a bit. Interesting because that was actually your next assignment, right? You right. were the you were the commander of public health of the public health command. Right. Yeah. What's the mission of the public health command? Yeah. So what was interesting while I was at Fort Carson, I I went from a level one to a level two, MTF command. It, it became both, and I and I got selected to stay there. And then shortly after that, in December of uh, 2011, I got nominated to be the the chief of the Army Nurse Corps, and then confirmed by the Senate. So that went meant I went from colonel to two-star. So I had to move, and so uh, they selected me to go to U.S. Army Public Health Command at Aberdeen, Maryland, which is actually uh, our headquarters was at Edgewood. And that command, I have to say, is probably one of the, the jewels that we have in the Army, because a lot of people don't realize all the things they do. We, we do focus a lot in the Army on our our go-to-war, our trauma skills, and which is a trauma nurse I was very familiar with. But at Public Health Command, what I found to be very interesting is our focus there on the health, population health, as well as uh, identifying and mitigating risk of exposures for all of our service members. So whether it's air, water, soil, it's those hazards that could cause devastating and long-term effects to our, our beneficiaries, to our service members. And being able to see how we affect that across not only the Army, but across the other branches of the military, as well as how we provide occupational health support to all of our civilians in the military uh, was just phenomenal. And the, the group there, just to work with that many professionals was uh, inspiring. Excellent. From there, you went to be the commander of the Southern Regional Medical Command. Yes. Talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, you know, it was interesting because, you know, I'd been away from medical treatment facilities. I'd left uh, Fort Carson in, in December or January of, of 2012. And so to go to a, a back after 16 months uh, to command 11 MTF uh, military treatment facilities across really the southeast was, uh, was great because uh, I enjoy interacting uh, with our patients. And then really, the business of healthcare. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and this is what ensures our readiness uh, to deploy. This is what ensures that our soldiers are medically ready to deploy and then taking care of our beneficiaries. And so it was exciting to be able to get back to the day-to-day -day operations of, of healthcare, also some of the challenges that, that we see in healthcare. And then at the same time also be, uh, as we were transforming the military health system to stand up the Defense Health Agency, to be uh, the enhanced multi-service market manager for here in San Antonio, where we had to take our 12,000 full-time equivalents here in San Antonio or from the Army's Army side as well as the Air Force and, and integrate to ensure that we had a business plan that would not only ensure that we were taking care of the beneficiaries that we enrolled, but also recapturing workload from the civilian sector uh, that, we, uh, that we had capacity to do and capability to do within our uh, uh, military MTFs and the direct care system. How was that different as a leader? How was that different? So you had been CEO of a, of a single hospital. Now you were CEO of a hospital system. How does that change your, uh, how does your leadership have to change to do that? What did well, you? Well, it, it does have to change because now instead of you being focused down into your uh, hospital as you are as a CEO, now you have to be focused really up and out and you have to give guidance to those CEOs. So to have 11 CEOs with varying experience, you have to, you have to help them develop their skill sets as a CEO. Some had commanded before, some hadn't. Some had actually worked in a, uh, uh, had been more on the tactical side of things and not on the uh, bricks and mortar side of uh, healthcare, and so I had to spend a little bit more time with some of them to ensure that, to answer their questions. But really now your role is more of an advisor, a mentor, and asking questions to make sure that they understand what their role is in development of the business plan for that specific location, but the, and, and, and enabling them, empowering them to be able to lead, not to, to, to be a micromanager. And so, that, uh, that is a change. You have to make an adjustment with that, but I ha also had to make that adjustment when I was at Public Health Command because I had five regions that were spread across the world in 14 time zones. So you have to have trust. You have to trust your leaders and you have to give them the tools to be successful. And so you have to ask them the question, you know, what can I do to help you? Uh, and also ask the question, how are we a problem to you? How do we hinder your ability to lead your, your hospital. When you frame it like that, then it sort of takes the de defensiveness out of it and they realize you're there to help. And then it, again, it goes back to treating people as, as people and not seeing them as objects and realizing that everybody has needs and requirements and how do we ensure that we're addressing those. And then also helping them see that there are other, there are other military treatment uh, facility CEOs, commanders have challenges too, and and to, to realize that because really you also have a responsibility to grow the person that's going to replace you. Right, right. So that leads us to today, in October of last year, uh, you became the Deputy Commanding General for Operations for the U.S. Army Medical Command. You oversee a budget of 12.6 billion. Uh, more than 134,000 military and civilian and contract staff, 3.8 million beneficiaries, and operations on five continents with more than 450 facilities. 
How does anyone keep track of that many moving parts? You have to have a phenomenal staff, and, and that's one thing I, I do. And then, again, have, you have to have trust. And so now there are five regional medical commanders that I uh, interact with on a daily basis, as well as the dental command. And the important thing is, is to allow them to lead and to advise and guide them. It's sort of like when you talk about, you know, a board of directors is, you know, if you're part of a board of directors, you have to, you, you're not going to tell them how to make the bread, but you're going to give them some advice and you're going to be there to give them advice, to mentor them. And then also making sure that they understand, again, the business of healthcare. And one of the things that I think is critical today is that we have got to be able to define and measure quality outcomes in healthcare. Okay. And we're on a journey now, just as many civilian organizations are, to be a high reliability organization. It's a journey that you'll always strive to be, you know, to get to zero preventable patient harm. Right now, we know in the United States, on average, 440,000 Americans die because of preventable patient harm in our civilian healthcare organizations. Now, some people stop and take pause when I mention that number, but, you know, when we talk about other high reliability organizations such as aviation and the airline industry, you know, I tell people, I said, if, if we had 440,000 people killed a year in aviation accidents, would you, would you get on an airline? And many say no, but they still come into our, our medical treatment facilities. Can you, can you define a high reliability organization? Yeah, high reliability organization actually has three key components. First is engaged leadership. Any new initiative that you start in a facility is not going to succeed if you don't have engaged leadership. The second uh, tenet of a high reliability organization is to have a, a safety uh, culture. And when I say safety culture, it's a culture where people feel comfortable admitting mistakes and also reporting near misses. and as part of the organization and understanding they're not going to be retaliated against and understanding that we do it to improve the organization and to prevent that those harm events. And then the third thing is to have a robust process improvement program and to be able to defer to your subject matter experts, not based on rank, but based on that I'm the subject, if I'm the subject matter expert for a particular product line or uh, procedure that I'm deferred to is this really the best quality uh, practice for our patients? And how do we improve uh, not only the safety aspects for, for our patients, but also how do we improve the patient experience? Okay. So how is, how is that process coming for the, for the Army Medical Department? Well, we just finished our uh, last regional uh, medical command summit. Uh, with the Surgeon General, we've gone out to educate people about what a high reliability organization is. Also to get their feedback and, and actually measure where they think they are on the continuum to a, to a high reliability organization. One of the things that we found is when we look at our organization and what processes we have in place right now, we've always, we, we've uh, been doing uh, what's called Team Steps, which is a communication tool which we train all of our staff to use. Uh, we found we were, the, our operations order required us to be at 90%. And so when I met with our uh, regional medical commanders and our dental command, I said, is 90% the right answer? And they said, well, you know, we're at 89, we're doing pretty good. I said, but if we're going to be a high reliability organization, what should we be at? 
And they said 100%. I said, that's right. So we, we're, our goal is to be 100% and then to be able to measure that we're 100% trained and then to make sure that we're actually using it. Uh, the other thing is, is about four years ago, we put in uh, place a process called the Patient Caring Touch System, which we started in our inpatient nursing units, uh, which is another communication uh, tool set, which uh, builds autonomy with our staff, ensures that we're communicating the same way with our patients and how we do patient handoffs. We've seen with this, by effectively using a Patient Caring Touch System, we've reduced medication errors, patient falls, and we've also uh, reduced turnover of our civilian staff, which is important because if you have high turnover, you're gonna reduce variance and risk to your patients. And so we, we know that it's never gonna be mission accomplished mm -hmm. uh, because every organization has changed, but what our goal has gotta be is zero, zero preventable patient harm. That's a great uh, uh, target to shoot for. Um, moving to this level, how has your leadership uh, leadership style changed? How have you? What adjustments have you had to make as you moved from the regional command up to the to the medcom? I think uh, one of the things I, I've really learned is you have to be self-aware and you have to think about what you say because how you deliver things can actually uh, influence people negatively or positively. You you have to uh, what I say self-aware it it can become more difficult at this level because now you're communicating with other senior leaders, not just those in medical uh, care, but you're also those in the civilian sector and in academia, and you have to be able to communicate the why. And I really find that that's where, with all the changes that we see happening, not only in civilian, uh, the civilian uh, medical practice, but in our military medical practice, is that we have to be able to communicate with, especially our younger generation, the why. And in the military and in, in healthcare in general, usually we expect there's to be some deference to, to rank or seniority. I, I don't really believe in that because I think what we see today with the generation we have today is this is a more collaborative generation and a generation that's more about team building and a generation that's going to ask you why. And a lot of times people are taken back when they're asking, well, why are we doing that? And I, when I talk to different groups, whether it's non-commissioned officers or early careerists or, or mid-level careerists, I tell them we have to be able to answer the why. Because if I can answer the why for them, they're going to, they're going to move out and, and do the right thing and, and actually make it better. And they're going to say, have we thought about doing this? You've got to be open and receptive to that. I think sometimes we overuse the word mentor too. Okay. And so I try not to use that. And I actually challenge when I go out and I speak to different groups, I'll say, if you were the deputy commanding general for MedCom or if you were the chief of the Army Nurse Corps, what would you want me to do differently? Now, that opens you up, but it's amazing that the great answers are the suggestions that you get from the, the folks that are, that are out there that, that really are, are subject matter experts. But you've got to be open and receptive to hear them. You can't just go out and be one direction. It's got to be bi-directional. And so that's one of the things I've really learned to do is to ask, is asking the right question. And then trying to model that because 
Uh, a lot of people, when I came in the Army, you know, if you were given an order, you, you follow that order, you take the hill. But we know in healthcare that we're ultimately responsible to the patient. And so if we see a preventable patient harm and we don't act on it, because we're like, well, I didn't really feel comfortable because that was the, that was the physician colonel and I'm a lieutenant or I'm a, a private or I'm a civilian and, and, and I'm afraid to speak up. We're harming the patient and we're, not a, we're ultimately accountable to the patient, not to the rank that's on that uniform. Okay. Let's transition and talk specifically about leadership. What were the most important lessons about leadership that you learned early in your career? I learned that you had to respect everybody that you worked with. Uh, it didn't matter what rank they had, that you respected everybody and you valued everybody. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I learned that early on. I learned that growing up from my parents, is that you needed to respect everybody. That you needed to take time to ask people how they were doing today, uh, to communicate with them. Because if you do that, and you do it consistently, when, when there's an issue, or there's potential for an issue or a miscommunication, people will approach you because they feel comfortable approaching you and saying, I heard this, what do you think about that? Or is this, and then you can actually say, well, you know, I hadn't heard that, but let me go check on it. And then yeah. you have to follow back up. Yeah. But I think that was a, a key lesson I, I learned early on and one that stayed with me for over 29 years. You've talked a little bit about mentors. You mentioned, uh, for example, Colonel Marshall early mm -hmm. on in your career. Um, how much did mentors help you throughout your career? I, I knew there were, there were individuals I could call and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking about. Does this make sense or does it not make sense? You know, be honest. And I could do that with, with people that were senior to me, peers. And I do that with, I think it's important subordinate. It's really that 360 look. And you gotta, you gotta put yourself out there and just say, does this make sense? Mm -hmm. Or what doesn't make sense? If it doesn't make sense, tell me. Now, some people won't do it in an audience, but one thing I always do is I give people my email, and I'm like, if, if you got something you didn't feel comfortable asking here, send me an email, because I will answer it. And so, for instance, I had three different uh, groups I engaged with last week, and I got emails back saying, you know, asking or making recommendations, and and they had felt comfortable making it in front of the group, and then I'm like, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let me. I've added some more folks to the email. We're going to address this because I think you made a, a very good point. Do you have Do you have anyone that you consider uh, a mentee? Do you have people that that regular that you regularly talk with and, and advise outside of your specific chain? Like yeah, yeah, no, I do, and and I'll have you know, and and I sort of leave it open if if somebody has a question, you know, just ask because you know. I think the other thing that happens sometimes uh, when you're in a senior position is people just assume that you're not open to take advice or that are new ideas. And that's one of the things I think is important. And, and that you have people that'll be honest with you and say, you know, that, that's, that's a bad idea. And so with the folks that I, that I mentor, uh, it's informal and they either will call me or I'll see them and we'll have a discussion. And it's not with just uh, people in the medical side of the house. I have uh, other, other people that, that I talk with uh, that are not in the medical field uh, that'll ask me questions uh, or advice. Um, and then I, I do the same thing. I have people that are 
definitely not in the Army or the medical field that uh, I ask, you know, does this sound right? Are we tracking on the right thing? Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, has recently garnered a lot of attention for her book, Lean In. Mm -hmm. uh, like Sandberg, you're married, you have kids, um, and you have had and still have a pretty amazing career. About 80% of the students in my program at UNH are young women. I think they'd like to hear your thoughts on work-life balance and how you've managed that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I tell people, and, and I actually have encouraged people to read, uh, it's on my reading list that I have uh, for the Armier's Corps newsletter is, is the book Lean and I think it's important. I, I think especially with, with uh, women, we have to listen. And when we're in a, a boardroom or we're in a, with a group, we have to, uh, we have to not think that, that we can't speak about the things that are important. And so I encourage people to, to be verbal and to speak up. And if you feel like somebody's sort of blowing you off, blowing you off, mm -hmm. then you just call them on it. And I, and I call people when, if I think somebody's blowing me off, I'll just call them on. It. I'll say, can you clarify for me? Am I, how am I a problem to you? Is this a problem to you that I brought up this issue? So you have to be forthright, I, I believe. On work-life balance, I, at this level, I'm not balanced as I should, as I want to be. But I did learn early on in my career, I was too balanced, focused on career. And I was married before. And I tell the young officers that I talk to about this, I, I, that, that first marriage, uh, really almost eight years, uh, I was so focused on my career, he was so focused on his. Uh, that it didn't last. And at that point, you know, uh, we divorced and I said, you know, if I ever get another opportunity, I'm going to try to do better. And so I did get another opportunity. I've been married to my husband for 18 years. I have a, a son who's 17 and a daughter who's uh, almost 15. And we communicate. And I think that that's a key thing is to communicate uh, the why. Well, this is why I have to go to uh, on this trip or be gone. I'm going to miss the soccer game or the school event. I wish I could be there. But what I do, and I try to model for my, my younger staff members, and, and I tell people this, is that you have to let your supervisors know that you have a, you know, if you've got a family, significant other, whatever, is you gotta let them know what's important. It's always I'm asking people, you know, what is important? Because people value time. And so I'll ask them, you know, do you have, you know, what, what are you interested in? What are you doing? What do you do besides work? And I think that that's important because you got to have that balance. I also put on my calendar, if there's something for my, you know, that I need to do with my husband or I need to do with my kids, I put it on the calendar and I'm, and to let them know this is important. And I tell people, you got to do that. Uh, because at the end of the day, we're all going to take the uniform off. At the end of the day, uh, you look at, uh, Cheryl Sandberg and others, at the end of the day, you want your family to be there because the most important thing that you'll ever have is your family or your significant others or your friends. They're not going to be there if you're not engaged with them. And so you have to take the time to appreciate them. And so that's what I do is uh, I, I, I work to do that. I don't do it as well, uh, I think, at this level, but my family understands and they're supportive. And it's that communication, making sure that, you know, I model it for those that I work with, 
because if I stayed here till if I if I talk about it, but then I stay here till you know eleven o'clock at night, then <laughs> that's lip service. You're not modeling. I'm not modeling, but I really do try to leave uh, the office uh, no later than six at night so I can have dinner with my family because that's important. And then if I have to get back on, you know, now with technology, I have a laptop, I have a hotspot, I have a virtual office. So if I have to get back on, I get back on after I've done the things I need to do with my family. And then I think it's important too to, to also reflect on yourself what's important to you. So for me, it's getting up every morning and exercising. Because I truly believe if you exercise the first part of the day and the rest of the day goes bad, you did one thing right. And that's really my time to reflect and sort of organize what I've got to do next. Either that day or the rest of the day, it helps me focused. And if, let's say there's something negative happens, I go, okay, yeah, that was negative, but I did one positive thing today. <laughs> and, and it also benefits, health-wise, it benefits me. Yeah. You kind of started to answer this, my second question question about Sandberg's book, book, which is that the book's not just about work-life balance. It's, right. it, it also argues that there's an institutional, or still is an institutional sexism uh, that women who want to rise to your level uh, have to work through. Some of it's overt, uh, and certainly the Army, like most good organizations, is trying to get, get that out. Uh, but some of it's not overt, uh, uh, just kind of assumptions and structure that favor males over females. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, did, your experience, did you experience this coming up, and, and how has the Army improved on this over your career? I'm assuming it has. But. Well, I, you know, and I think the, the, Army, the Army has improved on it. Uh, I think still people make assumptions if you decide you're going to have, uh, you know, if you're going to have children, you know, uh, there, we do have some leaders out there that make an assumption that you're not going to be able to, to deliver at the same level uh, you had before. But then I wonder if, if they have families, are they actually doing the right thing by their families. And I, I just think you have to be honest and tell people what's important. Uh, and if we model that for our, our young leaders, which I think we're seeing more of that now with this generation, because they're asking why, they're not gonna stay. And they don't wanna stay sitting out, you know, at a desk till 11 o'clock at night if there's not a good reason to do that. Because there's more things out there that they value in life. And they're gonna be committed to you if they, they see that there's a purpose, if they understand the why. If there's no why to it, we're just, we're training to, to time and not to task, then they're not gonna wanna be vested in that organization. And we see that in healthcare today, in civilian healthcare, uh, especially with our, our young uh, uh, providers, because they don't wanna work 100 or 120 hour work week, and they'll say, no, you know, I have a family and it doesn't matter male or female. So I really think we're seeing a shift, but I think for women, you know, we have got to get more women into uh, leadership positions. I mean, you know, let's face it, the Army is still, still very much a male-dominated uh, organization. Uh, and I would, I would even look at, when we look at civilian corporations, you look at uh, the boards of civilian corporations. There are some many boards that do not have female representation on those boards are the diversity of other uh, other races that need to be on represented that actually represents what America looks like. And so do we have room to improve? We most definitely have room to improve. Uh, let me ask just one last question in closing or, or to close on um, for someone just starting a career in healthcare. Uh, where would you point them if they really wanted to make a real impact 
what education and skills uh, should they be pursuing to be successful? I, you know, I would, uh, I would point them uh, to a, uh, a community type of practice, uh, if, if I'm talking about the civilian sector, to community type of, of practice to start uh, as an entry level careerist. I would encourage them to be affiliated with a uh, professional organization. Uh, I was very fortunate as a uh, captain when I was at uh, Fort Hood, Texas after leaving Korea because I had my master's in nursing administration. I, another one of the administrators there said, hey, you really should join the American College of Healthcare Executives. And so I did, and from that, I uh, got some great education opportunities, and then also, more particularly, the networking that I was able to achieve through the American College of Healthcare Executives, and then to, to go on and take the examination and actually become certified as a healthcare executive and then become a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, I, I think has really made a huge difference because people recognize that and they understand that. And so I think to be able to build in, and then have that exposure to other healthcare leaders, I think it's important to be a member of a professional uh, organization. Thank you for your time today. I appreciate you being part of the Health Leader Forge community. And I wish you all the best. Uh, well, I wish, you, I wish you the best too and uh, you know, we all are gonna transition at, at some point. My transition point uh, looks like it'll be November of this year and, and I'm looking forward to the next exciting chapter of my life. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.